You're listening to GDA Podcast, powered by GDA Speakers, now available on iTunes and all other podcast platforms with new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. GDA Podcast showcases insightful conversations from the best thought leaders, educators, policy experts, motivators, and storytellers on the keynote speaking circuit today. Want today's guest at your next event? Call GDA Speakers at 214-420-1999 or visit gdaspeakers.com. And now, here's this episode of GDA Podcast with hosts Scale and Kyle Davis. Enjoy. Mm-hmm. You've probably seen and heard Dan Revive over the years as he's covered the world's biggest events on CBS. There's no question his biggest day was 9-11, but he's had a long career of good news and bad news. Along the way, Dan has also written five books, including a bestseller about Israel's security called Every Spy, a Prince. He's also written a book explaining U.S.-Israeli relations and even a book about the Marvel Comic Books Company and how it came back from bankruptcy. Dan's book is Spies Against Armageddon, which is his new history of the clever and secret ways that Israel protects itself. Dan's a graduate of Harvard. After living in New York City, Tel Aviv, London, and Miami, he is now the Washington correspondent for a global TV news service called I-24. I know Dan always has something fresh and new to say, so please join us in welcoming Dan Revive to today's episode of GDA Podcast. Hey, Dan. Wow. Hey, that's so nice. Hi, Gail. Hi, Kyle. Hi there. I was reflecting as I was preparing for this today that we all met each other in 2012 on a cruise from New Zealand to Australia. <laughs> and, wow. I re- and one of the things I remember about you, Dan, because I really hone in on who's speaking on the cruise ship, is how many different times you spoke on how many different topics. So I know we have a lot of great ground to cover today. Well, I remember that, too. Uh, and just thinking that we're, you know, at, uh, at that time on the cruise ship at the bottom of the world, as some people call it. And so, you know, you're far from every crisis on Earth, yet. The beautiful thing about cruise ships, they actually want speakers to sort of plug you in what's happening in the stock market, what's happening with, you know, the president, what's happening with Russia. Um, And so I I love it. I love the mix. You know, you're out there in the middle of nowhere, but you're in touch with the world. I mean, that's that's absolutely me. So happy, happy to do it on the podcast, too. When we are on that, was that uh, was that pre or post uh, 2012 election? Because when we say 2012, it was a December, January cruise. Some kind of it would have been after it would have been been right after. Oh, yeah. I remember that. How late that year. Mm-hmm. So I know, Dan, that you uh, had a very distinguished career with CBS. And you left that career, I think it might have been close to 40 years, and went with a startup. What? Yeah. T- talk to us about that. That's a big shift. Well, um, I'm going to pat myself on the head and say it's courageous. Certainly, my 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 wife thinks so, but she was she was encouraging, which is great. Um, you know, get out of the old rut, do things in a new way. And when you join a startup like I24 News, it means that it doesn't yet have all the rules. You know, how long should a report be? Uh, even you know, how should you hold your head this way or that? Do you have to wear a tie in every report? I'll whisper, we don't have to. Um, so so I, I love that getting away from the old rules. Um, but almost everything at CBS news after being in bureaus all around the world had been kind of, you know, been there, done that. Let's see what a new outfit does. But here's the real 
you know, the real thing about I-24 News. It's anchored 20 hours a day out of Tel Aviv, Israel. And I, over the years, have built up Israel as a specialty. And four hours a night, it's anchored from Times Square, New York City. So I, I focus very much as the Washington correspondent on the uh, evening hours, like Americans talking to America. Um, and we're on some cable systems and uh, getting bigger and bigger, uh, as a startup should. And we're available online and an I-24 News app. And people you know, even watch us all around the world. Uh, but just to think that it was going to be linking Israel, the country that, as I said, I've written books about, and, and the U.S., and very interesting managers, and they were very smart and I don't know. I guess I was just ready to do something new. No regrets. This is where I've been since uh, the middle of February 2017. And uh, I'm telling you, it's going okay, and we're growing every week. Well, certainly there's never um, a slow day <laughs> in the city in which you live. What What would you say your uh, primary focus is on a daily basis? Donald Trump. <laughs> I and, that and, might more, be the answer. Yeah. and more particularly, Gail and Kyle, it's um, interpreting Donald Trump to the world. And I really try it. I really try to do it in a nonpartisan way. That's just my nature. Uh, if you believe in a, a astrological signs, I'm Libra. I'm a balanced person, and I am by nature. Um, and even as much as people say this presidency is incredibly different, because he's a non-politician. And so, of course, my liberal friends say this presidency is outrageous and horrible. And my conservative friends, a lot of them are also wondering, to tell you the truth. But they do think that uh, Trump is on their side, so they're basically happy. Um, I'm. I, I like to see it straight down the middle and interpret means that if we have a president who tweets as much as he does, if we have a president who then sometimes gives a formal speech, but he'll ad lib, you know, a couple of extra lines that turn out to be the most controversial things he said, the things that he says off the top of his head, I think someone needs to be fair and just try to explain why did he say that? Where is his heart? Where is his mind leading him? What does he really care about? An example is the so-called travel ban. Um, I think sincerely he thinks there's a danger to the United States from unchecked immigration. And certainly uh, liberal groups say, but there haven't been any attacks from that group at all. You know, it's ridiculous. Why block folks from those particular six countries? Uh, But I think the Trump administration in its policies um, has has some sincere points it's trying to make, has some things it's trying to accomplish. Uh, Certainly the methodology has been unprecedented, and his critics would say unpresidential. Um, And uh, does he know how to get along with Congress? No, but Republicans in Congress say, well, that's because he's new and he'll get better at it. Um, I don't know, but that's what's fascinating, watching and seeing if he gets better at it and will our country get better for it. So those are all open questions. And whenever I talk about it on TV or I write a column also for the newspaper Newsday twice a month, um, I, I just or to audiences in person, I try to be down the middle. I think it's the best way to offer information. And then you decide, you know, if you agree or don't agree with the policies that I'm explaining. I'm trying to explain things so it'll get into your head. Um, And I think there's important stuff going on. It's not all fun and games and tweets. So uh, in case people are wondering, we're recording this on July 5th. And since everything Trump is on a daily basis, (laughs) we may be missing some stuff that happens in the future between now and when we publish this. Uh, But so in, in like the last few days, I mean, we've had this Mika Brzezinski thing, and then now he's tweeting about China um, as he's going to Poland to go spend 50 hours there pre-NATO summit, uh, and then he has this meeting coming up with Putin. You know, how do you explain all of these little intricate mm-hmm. things that um, 
mm-hmm. you know, something is, is seemingly weird to talk about a, 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 a newscaster to something as mm-hmm. tweeting about Chinese policy with North Korea. And then, you know, some reports saying he's ill prepared for this upcoming meeting with Putin. How do you explain this to the world? Yeah, that's a whole basket of stuff. And it's not too much that you're asking, Kyle, because I think I love to find connections. Uh, and they include that China is not the only country that does a lot of trade with North Korea, but Russia could have a hand also in helping things simmer down in North Korea. And by the way, how the United States is doing when challenged by North Korea and its missile launches and its nuclear program affects whether the world will pay attention to us anywhere else on trade deals in Europe, on trying to find a solution for the Syrian civil war, where just part of it is the fact that ISIS is in Syria. And ISIS, of course, threatens to attack in the United States. And I'm just sort of drawing the connections here. Um, And if you have to sort of deliver an organized speech, 20, 30, 40 minutes, um, I find that uh, by, by mentioning things that the audience, and this is true on television too, mentioning things that the audience does know. Okay, Vladimir Putin, they've heard of him. All right, North Korea, we've heard of you know, we've heard of the dictator there, but drawing a connection between those things, including trade. And then on the side, I can mention that Trump really courted controversy by totally canceling a trade deal called the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which, you know, not a, not many Americans hear about because, you know, we don't talk about foreign affairs that much. But to the Pacific countries like South Korea and Vietnam and the Philippines, the U.S. dropping out of that left them in a lurch. They wonder, you know, where is the leadership? And Trump is trying to rush ahead and be a leader in a different way, making one-on-one deals. Those are just examples. So when Trump goes to, say, the Group of 20 summit, as you say, uh, early July in Hamburg, Germany, um, a lot of it is what people in Washington call optics. How does it look? You know, what can get done at a G20 summit? It's like you almost have too many leaders there. Sure, Trump and Putin, their meeting is going to be a big deal because it's the first ever. Uh, But beyond that, all those other leaders, the final communique, all the subjects. Will Trump look presidential? Will Trump tweet? Will Trump engage in various distractions like fighting Mika Brzezinski or CNN in a wrestling ring? You know, those are all questions that are connected to whether America looks strong and in the end, that absolutely impacts whether we can have our way against terrorist groups, in trade deals, exporting U.S. products, which leads to more jobs for Americans. I think it's all connected. And lastly, if the president's doing well, there's a much better chance of him getting the main points of his agenda passed by Congress. Uh, you know, as of late June, there'd been a series of embarrassments, including that the health reform hadn't gone through. Uh, so, uh, all these things are connected, whether Trump looks like a winner, it affects whether America looks like a winner. What's the, uh, you, so you mentioned that I 24, your, your new company or outfit that you're working with is anchored in Israel. So I'm assuming it's also based in Israel. What's the, the, the sentiment or, or the feelings, um, in the first six months or so, uh, of the Trump administration in Israel? Well, you may recall that Barack Obama didn't get along well with the prime minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu. It was a personality clash. It was a politics clash. Uh, The feeling uh, in Israel was that Barack Obama was trying to uh, lecture the Israelis. They have to pull out of the territories they captured in the Six-Day War 50 years ago. Otherwise, Israel can't be a democratic Jewish state. You know, and Israelis said, stop lecturing us. You know, we're having a hard enough time, you know, fighting terrorists and doing what we can. And, uh, 
uh, I, I would say most Israelis got resentful of Obama. Uh, certainly the Netanyahu government did. So Trump gets elected. Uh, not Hillary Clinton, and, and by the way, Israelis felt that Hillary would have kept lecturing them. Uh, you know, I'm not, and, and again, in my nonpartisan way, I'm saying I don't know if for good or for ill. You know, maybe Israel needs to be lectured in order to, you know, be pushed into peace talks. But the way the Israelis feel is, stop lecturing us. So uh, Donald Trump gets elected. His first visit abroad in May is to Saudi Arabia and then Israel. Now, the Israelis felt, you know, a little bit hard done by Saudi Arabia first, but all right, that's cool. They got it that Trump's tried to encourage the Saudis to be nicer to Israel, maybe together have a counterterrorism and anti-Iran block. Um, and the Israelis say, OK, we kind of like Trump's ideas, but wait a second. Trump said he was going to move the U.S. embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem to honor Israel and its capital, Jerusalem. But now he decided not to, at least for now. And Trump is talking about forcing us into peace talks with the Palestinians, where we'd have to give up some territory and maybe not build settlements in the West Bank. Wow. Well, we thought Trump is totally pro-Israel. So Israelis, you know, got they have their big question mark right now. Uh, they, they judge American leaders by the level of support. Uh, they, they, they didn't like Obama. They think they like Trump. But the question mark is up there right now. And I would say that's Israel's Israel's take on, on what America is trying to do right now. Uh, the one follow up thing that I mean, I, that was kind of left out of that that I'm thinking of, too, is that in that meeting that, that followed the um, the maybe unintentional leak of classified information with regards to sources and methods using an Israeli uh, contact in ISIS. Uh, so I was wondering if, if that had any impact on Israel and the Israeli government's views towards Trump as well. Yes, it did in the government. And, you know, I've written a couple of books on Israel's intelligence agencies, including Every Spy Prince uh, and the current spies against Armageddon. So, you know, I, I do keep up with this. I have an Israeli co-author on books like that. So, you know, I, I, I believe that I'm aware of what Israelis feel about things like leaks and, and they hate them. And they really were concerned when Donald Trump in a private meeting with the Russian foreign minister and the Russian ambassador in Washington. They got together in the Oval Office and we only had Russian photos of that event and they were, you know, back slapping and happy and smiley. And then we find out from the Russians that Trump told them some information that U.S. intelligence had gotten about what ISIS was doing in Syria, uh, building small bombs that could go on airliners. And then we find out that the information came from Israeli intelligence. So, yeah, Israel's concerned. And therefore, in the Mossad, they say we have to be more careful. What we tell the CIA because Trump's new to this game. And so they're trying to think favorably of Trump. Uh, but, yes, they were worried. But believe me, it's in the in the nature of intelligence agencies, not to like leaks, whether they come from presidents or uh, newspapers, they don't like leaks. I mean, maybe I guess my follow up question, because you kind of, you, I said this follow up question thing twice, but um, <laughs> you, know, you, you mentioned something. It's like, you know, they have to be careful in what they, they tell the Trump administration because they just don't. I mean, you know, obviously Israel doesn't have a handler to say, hey, you know, Mr. Trump, you can't say this. So it, instead, it's, it's, hmm. um, redaction through omission. And so uh, I'm just kind of curious as to how long that will persist or, you know, how mm -hmm. long can, you know, mm -hmm. uh, what is essentially the best relationship we have in the Middle East, if not um, sure. you know, the greater, you know, MENA region, you know, how does that work? Very good. So let's consider it this way. And again, if uh, if anyone ever wants to hear a talk that's specifically about the Mossad and the CIA and a history of how Israel and the U.S. got along, um, this is always it's always a bit of a roller coaster. Nobody trusts anybody 100 percent. And Israel is a small country, population 8 million. 
It has its own priorities. It's very concerned about Iran and its nuclear program and Iran's support of terrorism more concerned than even is the U.S. Israel's concerned about its own borders. Israel has its own view about the Palestinian issue. Uh, and so Israelis assume uh, that, you know, they've got to worry about themselves above all. They're lucky and they've worked at it to create the United States as their greatest friend. And Israeli leaders like to say, uh, uh, Israel has no better friend than America and America has no better friend than Israel. Okay, true. But there's even a case, you know, of espionage by the Israelis in Washington. Uh, a lot of Americans remember uh, the Jonathan Pollard affair. An American happened to be a Jew who worked for an American uh, uh, naval intelligence agency. And he was spying for Israel, feeding them documents. Israel apologized, swears it won't do it again. And they probably won't. But it does show that there's always a little bit of suspicion in the espionage game. Nobody trusts anybody 100 percent. But still you use you use your friends, your connections, your liaison relationships um, in order to help yourself. And so even the CIA doesn't trust anybody 100 uh, percent. But, you know, it's a tough game. Intelligence. The Israelis play it better than most, especially considering what a small country they are. It's a fascinating history. But let's not kid ourselves that these two countries, U.S. and Israel, trust each other 100 percent. So. Kind of pivoting to the greater, you know, Middle East. Um, I know that we talked offline or prior to recording, um, you know, kind of what's going on with ISIS in Syria and Iraq, and uh, you know, it's different. Fran- well, we didn't talk about the franchises, but we can talk about that as well. Um, you know, so I believe Mosul just fell. Uh, so what else is going going on, and you know, how are things changing, and, and, and what is the greater uh, issue at hand? Well, as you said, Kyle and Gail, depending when folks are listening to this podcast, you know, I'm not going to promise that ISIS is totally, totally, totally finished in the two major cities that it was holding for about three years, Raqqa in Syria and Mosul in Iraq. But once the U.S. really got going, first under President Obama and then I think even more so this year under Trump, uh, the U.S. military is really delivering a lot of help to local forces, to the Iraqi army and Kurdish forces uh, to get ISIS out of Mosul and to the Syrian democratic forces, which includes Kurds again in Syria. And you have U.S. airstrikes, you have U.S. advisors, because ISIS is our enemy. Okay, so once you defeat ISIS in cities, where do you think they go? They're not all dead. They're going to be insurgents. They are going to be terrorists, certainly in those two countries. Iraq and Syria. Many of them will go back to their original countries, and that could be North Africa and other places where they came from, you know, attracted by this great struggle. But even more worryingly, some of them, and generally would be Muslims attracted by joining ISIS, will find their way back to uh, countries in Europe, including Britain and France and Belgium and the Netherlands and Spain and Italy. Uh, and the authorities in those countries are absolutely on the lookout, you know, for anybody coming back. And they usually try to hide their travels. You know, they'll come through Turkey and pretend they went on vacation or they had a job on a Greek island, but they really went to Syria and became fighters. And some of them, you know, real trained terrorists. And, and already we've seen some attacks in Europe, as you know. U.S. officials are very concerned as well, although they don't believe that more than 200 Americans went to join ISIS. We're very lucky over here. We're far, far, far away from Syria and Iraq. Uh, in general, Muslim populations in the U.S. are not that radicalized. There are a lot of people who work in 
certain Islamic community centers and mosques who are in good contact with the FBI, who absolutely give information and tips when there's some extremist around. In Europe, I wish I could say the same. You know, radicals and extremists uh, definitely exist and have staged attacks. Uh, that would be the next stage. I think ISIS uh, still has its ideology still wants to spread the notion of an Islamic caliphate that will perfect, you know, living under strict Islam. Um, and they will try to destabilize as many governments as they can in the Middle East and in Europe. So I'm afraid ISIS won't be finished. And we have to uh, we have to absolutely strengthen our defenses and awareness. And in President Trump's case, he believed that it therefore required, you know, the travel ban and being unbelievably more careful with immigrants. That's where you go into a huge controversy because America is a nation built on immigration. So how do you find the balance that will keep us safe? So when the power vacuum occurs that, you know, ISIS is pushed out and, you know, whatever remaining fragments of fighters go back to, you know, their parts of Europe or, or elsewhere, you know, who fills that void? I mean, you know, we have, you know, the PKK or the Kurds coming in, you have the Iraqi government, you then have the Syrian government, you have al-Nusra, you have, you know, so-and-so backed by Iran and then the Russian, you know, who's filling this void? Because I just see it saying, okay, we're all unified against this. And then once ISIS is out, okay, now it's a, it's a, it's 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 a mad dash for power. Well, Kyle, I mean, two different sets of issues when we talk about Iraq and Syria. Iraq does have a government; its capital is Baghdad. Uh, you know, of course, what the United States did went in in 2003. Uh, uh, helped topple Saddam Hussein. Uh, eventually, after a lot of fighting and violence, you know, a new apparently stable government has arisen. It gets a lot of support from Iran, which is not in America's interest. So there's a, you know, there's a power struggle going on in Baghdad who will influence Iraq more, the Iranians or Western countries. You know, for now, it was in our interest to make sure that ISIS is dealt a defeat uh, by getting them out of Mosul. And so the U.S. Uh, will want to still look active in helping the Iraqi government. Also, that part of northwestern Iraq, uh, that the Kurds have an autonomous region with the capital of Erbil. It's technically in Iraq, but the U.S. has a close contact there. Uh, there's oil that's produced. There's other industry. We want peace in that part of the region so that, you know, terrorists can't have a haven. Meanwhile, just to the west in Syria, they've had a civil war since early 2011. So I don't think the U.S. has any vision or plan for who should run Syria. I'll even say that the Trump administration will be willing to let Russia's Vladimir Putin have his way, that whoever runs Syria is going to be a friend of Russia, so that the Russian Navy can still have its Mediterranean fleet using a warm water port in Syria, and, and that's Russia's strategic goal, and the U.S. can live with it. We just don't want terrorists to be in Syria with training camps, plotting attacks on airliners and on the United States. Uh, who, you know, what's going to happen in Syria? How quickly will the civil war really end? Um, I certainly don't know, but I can tell you Israel watches it really carefully with great concern that Iran and its Hezbollah partners, Iran really pays for Hezbollah based in Lebanon. Uh, so very concerned Israel is. The U.S., actually less concerned. Like I said, they would they would let Syria be in Russia's sphere of influence, just get the terrorist ISIS out of there. So quite different. Our our American goal is quite different in Syria. Well, that's, <laughs> you know, that's Dan, a fair question, a fair response. <laughs> I, I'm super curious about your background and um, 
why all of this world news has had such a pull on you. <laughs> well, Gail, um, certainly I've been a news junkie from the very beginning, probably from my, my first breath of air in Yonkers General Hospital, New York. I was the son of two Israelis. That's right. My parents both were from Israel. They came to the U.S. to get their education at about age 26 after Israel had its great war of independence. The state of Israel is born in 1948. My parents came in 1950 and I'm born after that. So um, in the house, First, they spoke Hebrew to each other. And so, hey, there's a foreign language right there in my ears. My brother and I got Hebrew. Um, They were unbelievably interested in what's going on back in Israel. So they had the radio on all the time. Um, And just in general, we got to be real newsy type people. My brother, myself, my parents, etc. And a lot of world news. Oh, and a lot of cousins. Yeah, cousins and uncles would visit from so many countries. Now you've heard the phrase "the wandering Jew," and you know, I, you know, I, you know, that's not you don't have to push it too hard. But of course, Jewish people until the establishment of Israel usually did have to move every generation here, there, or somewhere. And so, in my family, I mean, just the cousins who would come through where my parents settled in Great Neck, Long Island, New York, those cousins would speak uh, Hebrew, Russian, Yiddish. Spanish, French. Oh, that's for sure. Maybe even a couple of others as well. And they'd all lived in all those countries, etc. And then we would visit them, etc. So we got to be very, uh, you know, very world minded. And I think early on from our home and from our family, we knew that much as America is fantastic and a shelter and a haven to us all. And of course, a big melting pot. You know, America isn't it. You know, you do have to understand what's going on in the rest of the world. And so, uh, I don't know, that's been my thing. Even as I became a journalist, uh, I can write stories about anything. I can cover Trump and the economy. I can, you know, I can moderate a forum on, uh, on, on business trends or why the stock market is up or down or whatever, where interest rates are headed. I'm interested in all that. But you give me something that's connected to world affairs. I don't know. It just, uh, it just comes to me naturally. It, these are just, this is the set of topics that I really love. You know, it's interesting. Sometimes I'll have a conversation with a client about a particular speaker and they'll say, mm, you know, they're just not global enough. And then one day later, I'll be talking about another speaker and they'll say, mm, they're too global. <laughs> is there such a thing? I mean, can you give a domestic talk and not talk about the world? I mean, it, mm-hmm. I think it would be a mistake. Yeah. I think it would be a mistake. I mean, especially that, you know, I mentioned that our chances of success lie largely in how the U.S. is doing in terms of trade and having military allies overseas and having, well, just having successes. And that leads to our having more jobs because we export more products that the world will buy. And it's not all business. It's also kind of, you know, the feeling. Are we popular in the world or not? Is there goodwill toward Americans? Because even as we take vacations and trips or our children do a junior year abroad or a vacation or a destination wedding. <laughs> you want to have the sense that America is still popular and respected, but, but it really does affect our economy. Uh, and so sure, I, I, like I said, I can, I can give a presentation that's basically on how some industry is doing or moderate a panel of experts, but I would say inevitably something that that industry tried to do overseas, some product that it that the industry wanted to sell overseas, but a German company was doing it better or a Vietnamese company was doing it more cheaply. I mean, those are all things that affect us. You know, India is a giant country. If they're going to be as good as we are at technology, 
but they are going to charge a lot less for their products, that's going to be a tough one for us. And certainly anyone in American business has to find a way of coping with those challenges. So your background with your family um, and your news career makes sense out of most of your topics and most of your books. The one that, <laughs> that just jumps out that I'm not sure to how to connect is the one on Marvel Comics. Now, I've had the pleasure <laughs> of being in your home, and I know you love Marvel Comics, but why don't you share with the listeners how you got interested in that and a little bit behind that book? And it's not from childhood, by the way, right? If anyone's listening and remembers how it works with comic books, you either are into DC Comics, Superman, Batman, Justice League of America, and Wonder Woman, or Marvel, which is Spider-Man, the X-Men, and the Avengers. Okay, you got it. So here, I, here I am dropping names, right? You can accuse me of that. Anyway, what happened is someone approached me after I'd written that, you know, lucky me, that successful book on uh, Israeli intelligence agencies. Someone approached me and said, you really should look into the bankruptcy of Marvel Comics. And I said, why would I do that? And my informant said, the two guys who swooped down into bankruptcy court and rescued Marvel and then turned it into a movie company are both immigrants from Israel. They're both Israeli Americans. And they used sort of an Israeli style of determination and innovation. And if one approach didn't work, then they would try another approach to the bankruptcy court or to the, to the lenders and the creditors and all that stuff you have to do in bankruptcy. And boy, did I learn a ton doing that book. Um, so I still had my doubts, but when I met everyone involved and learned that Ike Perlmutter and Avi Arad, the two heroes of the story, the two winners who turned around Marvel and got it away from two of America's most famous billionaires, Ronald Perlman and Carl Icahn. They were the losers in the Marvel battle. Um, I felt that I could explain the business and the bankruptcy court through colorful characters who, you know, curse at each other and work all night and yell at each other and come up with innovative solutions. And even the two Israeli Americans who won the Marvel battle even issued statements like all Israelis were not giving in to terrorism. And they were referring to Carl Icahn. So, you know, just the nature of the battle uh, in the end won me over. Um, and so, yeah, I wrote that book uh, myself, a solo book. I, I, I learned so much. I, I spent about a year and a half doing it. It's called Comic Wars. Um, and it was a good time. A good time was had by all. <laughs> I've learned anything living in New York and having a few friends that were in the IDF. Never mess with a guy named Avi. There you go. I'm, I'm with you. Uh, so uh, one of the things, though, that we, we, we kind of skipped over, and I just want to circle back on before we uh, before we wrap this up, but it's kind of what what's the landscape kind of coming forward? I know uh, some of the bullet points here that we were going to mention is we're talking about, you know, are these tax cuts coming? Is the health care bill coming? What's going on with North Korea? I mean, there is just a million and one different things. So... Uh, <laughs> There you go. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's it's a tough job. It's a tough job. Uh, well, I don't mean as a journalist and a lecturer. Believe me, I can I can take it. But to be a member of Congress or a senator, and you know, recommending, listening to your uh, to your uh, constituents, you know, do they really want that health reform or not, etc. Wow, you get pressure from the White House. Okay. And the toughest job of all is being president. Do you remember at one point after he had the job for about three months, Trump said, it's harder than I expected, right? I had a good life before, uh, and I thought that was hard being in business. This is harder than I thought. Okay, so even he discovered so many conflicting interests. How do you find allies for the United States around the world? What do you do when Americans die? Whether it's that unfortunate student Otto Warmbier, 
who uh, you know returned to the U.S. from North Korean captivity in a coma and then died? Do you accuse North Korea of murder and then have to do something about it? Or what if you're the president and you decided to okay a special forces raid on Al Qaeda or ISIS and some of the soldiers or civilians die? You know, just how awful do you feel? Assuming you're a human being and you have feelings, and there are the political realities as well. Uh, you know, and in the case of Donald Trump, you promised voters that you would repeal and replace Obamacare. And you said during the campaign, it'll be so fast and so easy, and it'll be great health care at a fraction of the cost. And all of those are more or less quotes. And then you, you, know, you, find, you, you find reality once you have the job and you ask your Republicans in Congress what's doable, and then you find they won't unite. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, again, as of our taping date right now, you know, what will get passed or not? Uh, a lot of people think that uh, tax reform will be easier because people love lower taxes. But I think if his proposal is one that helps rich people a lot more, then there's going to be a lot of resistance and that even the Republicans in the Senate won't be enough to get through the tax reform the way Trump envisions it. Um, how about uh, infrastructure? building, spending a few trillion dollars in the next 10 years to build things, that's got to be popular. But that's where you'll find Republicans saying, whoa, 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 whoa. we don't want to increase the deficit. We, we can't have more spending if we can't you know, pay for it. And there's no way we're raising taxes. We're here to lower taxes. Wow. All these goals conflict. And so a lot of it, you know, heading toward the midterm elections, already in sight, late 2018. And then, of course, Donald Trump swears that at age 74, he intends to get reelected in 2020. He swears that's a big goal. He almost takes it for granted that he will get reelected. He's got to look great. He's got to look popular and he's got to look like he got, um, a, you know, a goodly number of his uh, of his promises accomplished. How will that happen? That is why I am still in journalism. There, there is so much to follow, and it's you know, wow. I'm, I'm wondering, you're wondering, and it affects us all. Well, it's just it's so interesting. I mean, like it, it, it would be easy pot shot to say the no duh comment of the year would be like, my, it's a lot harder than I thought it would. Be. <laughs> I mean, that that's come on. It's easy to say that, but I think it's a it's a lot harder for people to understand that you have. You know, 535 competing interests on Capitol Hill, you know, 100 in the Senate, 435 in the Congress. And then you have, you know, you have different agencies with different views on different things. And then you have cabinet members who, you know, Rex Tillerson on one side, General Mattis on the other. And so you have all of these, this, this confluence of, uh, of, entities. Now, now, Kyle, now, Kyle, I, I hate to, to cut you off, but when it comes to the cabinet, that shouldn't happen, right? They're all chosen by Donald Trump. That that shouldn't happen. It has happened because there hasn't always been a clear lead from the White House. And often what the president tweets seems to contradict um, what he says in public or the White House claims are the positions. And so that's difficult and maybe things will settle down. When it comes to members of Congress, well, listen, every president's had to face that, depending how large or small all your party's majority might be, but it's a matter of coalition building. And, and here's one question for you, right? I mean, almost everyone remembers that after Barack Obama became president in 2009, that's when he took over in early 2009, there were Republican leaders on the Hill, on Capitol Hill, who said our main thing is to make sure he fails. And not, not, some people say because they were racists. I actually don't buy that. They thought, of course, he's a socialist, liberal Democrat, and we want to make him fail. So we win the White House next time. But they really spent a lot of energy trying to make him fail. Now, let's update it to this year. Are there many Democrats and liberals who, above all, 
want Donald Trump to fail. Now, they would cite a reason. They think he's uniquely dangerous or, or stupid or, or, you know, whatever it is they say. And so they think for the sake of the country, right, they have to make Donald Trump fail. Well, I am down the middle enough to say we don't want the president and the White House and administrations to fail. We want them to adjust and build coalitions and become leaders who can get things done in a complicated and challenging world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's what like kind of I think most people want. And I think where I was kind of getting at with the uh, all, all these different things, it's just like someone hand them a book from Doris <laughs> Kearns Goodwin of Team of Rivals, and then uh, you know something <laughs> on coalition building and you know how to win friends and influence people, and maybe put down the art of the deal. And let's get some stuff done. Well, okay, and I don't want to make fun. I don't want to make fun, and I'm not. I and I, I try not to ridicule the president, but it is known that he is not a book reader. Um, that the reports that he gets are very very, very short. It is said, not 100% confirmed, that if anyone from the State Department or even his daily presidential briefing wants to get his attention, you have to have the name Trump in the report as much as possible because then he'll pay attention because he cares very much on what people in the world think of him. All right. If that's what motivates him, then, you know, let's, you know, let's live with it. Um, but uh, I, I just come back to it. And I would any time I speak to an audience as well. I think despite us being divided into right and left, self-described conservatives, liberals, Fox watchers versus MSNBC watchers, whatever it is, we've got enough in common, including the fact that the world's complicated and that if we don't move ahead, in our education and counterterrorism and being more productive in what it is that we manufacture so that we can sell it abroad. If we don't move ahead, we're going to lose out to world competition and that's going to affect our lifestyle and our prosperity. So here's, here's my call, please, for a way to find unity in all this. Well, that, my friend, is a good place for us to wrap. So uh, on July 5th, <laughs> the day following the United States of America's birthday, a call for unity from Dan Revive. I, like I love it. that. A call cool. for unity. Um, awesome. Look, if you guys want to book Dan Revive uh, to have uh, him come and, and, and enlighten your audience, you can do so by contacting GDA Speakers at 214-420-1999 or by going to gdaspeakers.com for the transcript and access to uh, or ability to, you know, find the books and everything else uh you can go to gdapodcast.com um for more information there uh with that being said dan thank you thank you you guys are great thanks a lot take care Thanks for listening to this episode of GDA Podcast, powered by GDA Speakers. If you're interested in booking today's guest, visit GDA Speakers at gdaspeakers.com or call 214-420-1999. Visit gdapodcast.com and subscribe to our newsletter to stay up to date and be informed of new episodes, blog posts, and more. Be sure to follow GDA Podcast on Twitter and Instagram at GDA Podcast, as well as Facebook at facebook.com slash GDA Podcast. Thanks again and stay tuned for more from GDA Podcast and GDA Speakers.